Hardcore Surf History. Where were you in 72? It was a time of change in America. Congress signed the Equal Rights Amendment. Surfboards went from nine feet to six. There was hope that we would soon be out of Vietnam. The joy of surfing helped ease painful memories of a war an ocean away. It was a time of a new concern for world ecology. American youth was searching for self-awareness. Some found themselves through religion, others tried drugs. For many, surfing was their form of personal expression. The draft ended in 1972, a relief to those young men whose numbers were never called, and the healing process would begin. Through surfing, surfers were able to escape from the pressures of a changing world into a more simplified, more pure environment. I'm Tyler Brewer in Brooklyn. This is Hardcore Surf History, where we take a deep dive into surfing's past, present, and future. On this episode, I had the incredible opportunity to talk to the legendary filmmaker Greg McGillivray. If you are not familiar with Greg's work, he and his business partner Jim Freeman produced a series of films from the mid-60s to the early 70s that set the standard for technical excellence. They formed their award-winning production company, McGilvery Freeman Films, and their final surf film was Five Summer Stories. It was deemed as one of the greatest surf films of all time. The film went on to tour to sold-out audiences from 1972 to 1979, each year with a new edit and a revised edit. They eventually went on to make a series of commercially successful projects, which eventually led to them making the film To Fly, one of the first IMAX films ever made. It was received with rave reviews, but unfortunately, as the film was premiering, 
Jim Freeman passed away in a helicopter accident. But Greg continued on, keeping Freeman on the company name and continued with his spirit as a guiding force. Greg would go on to produce the Academy Award-winning IMAX film, The Living Sea, and produce the critically acclaimed documentary, Everest. He has just launched the 50-year anniversary of Five Summer Stories and his new biography, 500 Summer Stories, which is awesome. I can tell you I have seen it. It's amazing. And I am so stoked I got to talk to him. I mean, honestly, I had so much fun. Uh, Greg is such an amazing person and really fun to talk to. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, as a little backstory, uh, when I was um, probably about 16, I guess, um, I was home one day. It was nearing the holidays, and my brother, Jamie, was off in college away. And, uh, you know, I was missing him, and we, we always nerded out on surfing. We always talked about how cool it would be to get our hands on films like Morning of the Earth or Five Summer Stories. And one day, I got a package in 95, and uh, the package was a box set for the 25th anniversary of Five Summer Stories. So about 25 years ago, I got this awesome box set, and it's amazing and beautiful, and finally got to see what Five Summer Stories looks like, and God, like the soundtrack, the editing, everything is so incredible, and uh, it's just such an insane movie, and they're touring it now around the country, so if you get a chance, definitely go see it, and when uh, in November, uh, when Greg's uh, biography launches, I highly recommend getting a copy, it's got all the cool backstories and everything, uh, and there's so much I learned from this conversation with Greg, I think you are all going to really enjoy this. Uh, so, without further ado, here is my interview with Greg McGillivray. Love you, baby, love you, oh, baby, I love you, baby, I do love you. I love you, baby, love you, baby, I love you, baby, I do love you. I love you, baby, love you, baby, I love you, baby, I do love you. I can't slow down a So, um, Greg, I am a huge fan of yours. Uh, I'm a bit of a surf nerd, uh, so I'm really excited to be to have you on. Like uh, when I got the opportunity, so reached out to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. So, um, you know, back in uh, 1995, you released the 25th anniversary edition of Five Summer Stories, and I was probably a sophomore in high school. My brother, who I'm very close with, had gone off to university, and I'm home alone one day. It's nearing Christmas, and what comes in the mail but this Five Summer Stories box set that I'm holding here. <laughs> yeah. Number 1,392. <laughs> yeah. And I, I numbered each one of those. Oh my, I know you signed it. Like, it's amazing. It, it's seen some moves. So it's, a, it's got a little bit of damage, but uh, the VHS still works. And uh, the booklet inside is still absolutely stunning and, and beautiful. Uh, so 
I think I, I probably need to start with the one question. Where were you in 72? <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you serious? Oh, yeah. I mean, where were you? Where were you in your life uh, in 72, really? Like what? Oh, it was a great time. Yeah. It, 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 you know, for, for me personally, it was a wonderful time. But also for the world, it was kind of a renaissance period where um, things were changing on shore and things were changing out in the water. And so it was a dynamic time. You know, Vietnam was ongoing and, and Nixon was in the White House and, you know, nearly everyone hated him by that time. <laughs> and and uh, especially because his uh, Western White House was right at Cotton's Point. And <laughs> they closed the beach all summer just when the South Swells would come. Well, anyway, that was Nixon's story. But the the uh, the thing for me is Jim Freeman and I um, had been making films together since we made Free and Easy uh, in in nineteen sixty six and sixty seven, and that went so well. I and mean, we loved working together. Um, you know, we thought, okay, this partnership is going to work. Uh, it's just not going to crash and burn like a lot of partnerships. And, you know, we were very similar in our tastes in films, but different, um, you know, and, and different backgrounds and different, different interests. Um, but the, the partnership that we had was going great. And, and we were moving ourselves from just doing surfing films, which were really challenging to us and wonderful and we love doing, but we were moving into other challenges in filmmaking, um, doing films about other subjects, um, like, like skiing or, or skateboarding or, um, dune buggying or you, you name it. And also we were getting jobs from Hollywood and from the New York ad agencies. Um, they liked our photography. It was unique and different than everyone else in the Hollywood realm at that time. Um, a little bit more free spirited, a lot of kind of creative angles and creative lighting situations. Um, and, and, you know, we love to shoot slow motion. We were one of the first um, groups to actually shoot slow motion in a proper way. Mm. And, the, so and and helicopter use, uh, Jim, Jim and I decided, okay, we've got to get visuals from the air, and <clears throat> so Jim said, well, look, I, I I love flying around, my dad's a pilot, um, why don't I kind of try to specialize in this, and so he became, after a while, the the best aerial cinematographer in the world. There there wasn't anyone better. And, and so that all led us by the time we were, um, you know, in 1970, we were, um, what, 25 and 26 years old. And we'd already made a couple films together. Um, and we decided to make five summer stories. And as we were making this transition to Hollywood filmmaking, and we had a four picture deal with United Artists to make four shorts that would play with the James Bond films, which mm -hmm. was kind of fun. 
Um, and we, uh, we had a lot of other contracts too. Um, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, yes. one of them doing all the aerials and, and bird flight uh, shots for that film. Um, the Towering Inferno, which was a big Hollywood feature and, and with Steve McQueen and, and Paul Newman. And, you know, so we were challenging ourselves in new ways, but still wanting to make this one final, final film for us uh, about surfing. And we had a lot of great ideas. And uh, that's how Five Summer Stories came about. Um, we didn't want to make just one idea. We wanted to make five. And it actually turned out to be eight. <laughs> like adding <laughs> new ideas as time went on. And the uh, for us, it was just joyous. You know, the when you're starting a company together with someone you really adore and and you know it was cool because our girlfriends were best friends and mm -hmm. Jim and I were best friends and we we basically work seven days every week um, and usually it was at least an an eight to twelve hour day um, there there were very few times <clears throat> when I would get to get out and do surfing or or go play volleyball but I bet it didn't feel like a, an eight-hour work day, you know? Oh, no. You know, it was a hobby. <laughs> yeah. This is what we would be doing um, if we had another job. <laughs> what we'd be doing in our spare time at night. Um, we love making films and still do. It's interesting. So I have a funny story. Um, my dad, who um, runs a surf shop in new york for the last you know almost 60 years now wow uh, sundown ski and sports which used to be emilio's in new york and uh he was supposed to do a screening of five summer stories in, in new york city and he had the role the, the role of film and it was in his newly bought porsche that he was feeling pretty good about himself and then the car got stolen <laughs> with the film in it. <laughs> and I think he owed you some money. So, <laughs> well, you know, it seems like I would have remembered that. <laughs> was that right in 72 when the film it was came around out? 72? Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, gosh, that's happened to me once before. We shot um, a whole sequence uh, for uh, on one day. And all of our film was in a truck and the truck got stolen. No. <laughs> the truck was worth, you know, $10,000. The film inside of it was worth a hundred thousand, but it wasn't worth anything to the person that stole the truck. <laughs> we just got to get in touch with whoever stole it. Just give us the film, keep the truck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I wanted to, I wanted to talk, uh, I was hoping you can talk a little bit about like who Jim Freeman was, yeah. you know, because he, to me, at least growing up, you know, we, we always heard the name, but obviously, you know, um, he had, he had passed, but, uh, you know, what type of person was he like? And it, it feels like there was a, a wonderful compliment to to your aesthetic and your your style and expertise, and and I was hoping you can speak a little bit to that because he he seemed like an incredible person. Yeah, he was, uh, and I, I'd love to talk about him. You know, the 
in fact, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of his, of his death and wow. in, uh, in uh, 26, um, <clears throat> the, the thing about Jim is he was a year older than I was and he grew up in Santa Ana, uh, went through the schools there. And then his dad w- was fairly well off. It was a, a radiologist and <clears throat> very well organized. And uh, like I said, he owned an airplane and um, he actually was one of those do- uh, doctors across borders. So he wow. go down to Mexico and help out down there. <clears throat> but, he, but he was a very religious guy. And so he, and he wanted to make everyone else religious. And so <laughs> it was sort of hard to be around him. Um, Jim was just carefree and wonderful. Though so he was, you know, he kind of put up with religion to some degree, and but but he was into film. He had a job early on, and when he was fourteen or fifteen, at the camera store in Santa Ana, um, he wasn't a surfer, <clears throat> but he wanted to make films about surfing because surfing was so beautiful, and and one of his buddies at high school talked him into it. Um, cause Jim was shooting movies in high school, just like I was. <clears throat> and the, by the time that I went to college and Jim was in college, um, right before I brought out my first surfing film, uh, which took me four years to make. Yeah. <laughs> and and was- $3,000 worth of film. Apparently you had to spend yeah. every week of your allowance on that. <laughs> The allowance was a, a work allowance. For our and, listeners, we're talking about a cool wave of color, by the, the way, just to, if anyone's not familiar with it. <laughs> the strangest surfing film ever made. I don't know. It sounds like one of Jim's films might have been a little stranger um, outside the third dimension, which I hope you could speak to after. <laughs> well, that's how I met Jim. Um, he was showing that film up in Santa Barbara in a small auditorium, the retail clerk's union hall. And I went to it. I, I, you know, left classes early and went to the screening and um, saw the film. And it wasn't a very good film except for one sequence, one 15 minute sequence, which was absolutely brilliant. And so I went up, I said, man, this kid, knows stuff that I don't know. And I got to find out what he knows and about, about filmmaking. And because back then you couldn't without going to film school and there were only three film schools back then. And, and I didn't want to go to LA two of them were in, in LA, USC and UCLA. Um, And I didn't want to go there. I don't like LA. I, you know, I I don't blame you. It surf sucks there anyway, you know, <laughs> it's too brown and gray. And so I, you know, I like color. I like, you know, I like to be out in nature. And so Santa Barbara was a perfect place uh, for me to go to, to school. And I loved UCSB. It was a fantastic campus, wonderful professors. And you know, anyway, the, I saw the film, went up to him and talked to Jim after the screening and we talked for an hour and uh, I said, well, don't you have to drive back? He said, yeah, I do. But you know, this is more fun. <laughs> and so we became friends. And so we talked to each other on the phone about 
once a month. And <clears throat> this was back when you actually had to pay for phone calls, and, <laughs> which is a different thing. <laughs> and then um, after, after several, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or so, we finally talked each other into our both pooling our funds together and making a film together. And so he put half in and uh, I think it was something like 15,000 and I put $15,000. It's all I had into making this film that we shot in South America, uh, Mexico and Hawaii and California. And it turned out to be free and easy and it became an immense success. And, and it really showed Jim and I that if we work together, because we were both so cooperative, um, but we came from different skill sets, mm -hmm. we could teach each other. And so our filmmaking became far better. And I think we were both pretty good by that time, but it became even better. And it was like one plus one not equaling two, but equaling three. Mm -hmm. And for me and Jim, um, because most of the time we were laughing and, you know, uh, talking seriously, but then laughing, we, we, we got along so well and it was so much fun to share experiences and push each other. Now we had been semi-competitors, mm -hmm. you know, because you're, competing against another surf filmmaker and, and uh, you've got to book your screenings when, when the com competition isn't booking their screenings. So <laughs> but you end up um, with Jim and I, we would go on location and push each other to do better, but in a constructive way. And uh, there's never been anyone I worked with, in, in Hollywood or, or in the IMAX industry who have been anywhere close to the fun that I had with, with Jim um, making movies, the intellectual, the, the social, the, uh, you know, even to a degree that the, the, the spiritual and, and, and uh, uh, joyous aspect of <laughs> just being in nature, uh, you know, we appreciated it. We, we love the earth. We love the water. Um, and that's the, basically the start of our environmental concerns and our conservation effort, which, which started with, with Sunshine Sea and then went, um, continued on with, with Five Summer Stories and then the rest of the films that we made after that. Um, this, this bent on sharing with people everywhere the beauty of the world so that you can love it as much as we love it and want to protect it as much as we want to protect it. Now, from what I read, uh, you were the more artistic one and Jim was probably the more technical. Is that, is that fair to say in terms of uh, skill set? If you were going to divide it, probably. Um, you know, I, I probably knew a little bit more about writing and, you know, about creating stories. Although I heard Jim was the humor of your films. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I heard you were you you wanted to be too serious and he was the one pulling you to be a little bit more uh humorous. 
Well, someone has told you right, and that's true. <laughs> you know, I took a bunch of you know high flute classes at Santa Barbara, and and you know thought I was somewhat of an intellectual, and the <laughs> you know Jim would go, well, that's partly right, but it's a little bit of BS, and so <laughs> let's just turn this into humor, and. It, that was part of the, the joy of working together. You know, I actually think if you can get more than one mind in on a film, um, you're better off. You're, mm -hmm. you're going to, you, you know, there has to be one person guiding the story from beginning to middle to end. So you don't lose sight of that, that through line. But if you can continually go off in, in variables as, as you tell that story, the film's going to be more engaging, more entertaining. And so <laughs> that's what, that's what Jim gave to it. And, oh my God, some, I mean, some of the things were so corny. <laughs> just <laughs> laugh. Well, you had a great actor in Mark Martinson too. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who loved to do it apparently. <laughs> oh my God. He, he, he's kind of the, the quiet, shy type. And, you know, because he was good looking and a great surfer and actually really funny when you were traveling with him, he was a joy because um, he's funny as heck. And he, when he starts to laugh, he, everyone, everyone laughs with him. I mean, it's, he's just a wonderful guy, but, um, he hated being a movie star and he just <laughs> hated trying to be something um, and be told to do something. And um, though he was cooperative and he always did it, but you know, we, we had examples where, man, we put him in situations like the running of the bulls in my own France where. <laughs> oh, I want to get to that in a little bit for oh, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like Mark was also on the lamb from, from the government. He was trying to avoid the draft. So he didn't really, he had to, I imagine he had to just put up with it, I guess. <laughs> you could always hold that over his head, I guess. <laughs> well, he, I mean, we're best friends. Um, yeah. So he, he wanted to come on the trips because not only, were they adventurous and we never knew what we were going to find because we were going to new places um, that hadn't really been surfed before most, most of the time. Um, but he, 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 you know, he was a surf star. And so he wanted to make money from it. Um, you know, we were not paying him to salary, but we were paying for all his food and travel and, and, uh, and lodging. And, um, you know, we, we, and we were on a small budget for sure. But, but were these, were these films, like, were you making mo that much money that you could afford to, to, to travel and, and pay the surfers to come along? Like, well, that's we, incredible. Yeah. We, we weren't making a lot of money, but we were getting great experiences and there was always the hope that, our film would turn out to be an endless summer where mm. it had a bigger release. So there was always that kind of limited hope, but 
uh, certainly a, a carrot out there. Yeah. And Jim and I did early on, um, you know, after, after we'd seen what kind of dissatisfaction that Robert August and Mike Hinson had with the experience of the endless summer, <clears throat> you know, we made sure that we signed a deal with Mark and Dale Struble and Bill Hamilton and others that were in our films that um, they would be cut in if there was a bigger upside. There was a very formalized way they they would have their attorneys look at it. And our attorneys would draft it and all that. And so it was very fair. You know, everyone knew that, okay, if this is a gold mine to come sometime, <clears throat> and it's a very low possibility of that happening, but they'll get cut in. And in fact, in the example of the Sunshine Sea and then Five Summer Stories, they came to fruition. They actually got paid. And that was a nice thing. I loved sending out those yearly checks. <laughs> Five Summer Stories, you know, you had 39 surfers who got paid out and roughly about 17% of the, the profits. That's incredible, right? Like, <clears throat> well, it was, and, and it was on a pro rata basis, and Jerry Lopez had so much footage, and a lot of it was slow motion. <laughs> so, so he had a big chunk. And so actually, that's how you funded Lightning Bolt. <laughs> probably a little bit of a truth in that. But the, uh, you know, he has always been a very close friend, and, you know, I, I love Jerry. And and uh, he, he kept calling and, and saying, Geez, you sent me this check. I can't believe it. It's so neat. I, I'm gonna go. I can't. Even, I don't even know what I'm gonna go out and buy. And you know, <laughs> he's got this high voice and, and this enthusiasm. And the 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 fun thing was is that he and and others invested the money, and mm -hmm. um, they turned it into more than what it was um, because they were and because they were being paid yeah. one year at a time. Um, you know, had they been paid all at once, they could have invested it more sizably, you know, and I, I don't know what the total that Lopez got out of five summer stories, but it was substantial. Um, it, it could have bought him some, you know, house or something. So pipe house. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a neat deal. That's, I mean, that just, is you know, so, that's so idealistic though. I mean, it's so hard, rare to see that even today. Like you, you just would not see that. Uh, I feel like it's, it's incredible. Well, I don't know if that's the case. I think people do know how to stand up for themselves a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, you saw that with the, the women's soccer team, for the yeah. US, which what a great example that is. Um, the people should be paid fairly. And I, Jim and I, just felt that morally just basically we're getting paid why shouldn't the surfer they're working hard um and, and they're the ones on screen they're the entertainment <laughs> and the the uh and and so we just felt that was fair and um i think really when you treat people fairly many, many good things are going to come back from that. Um, and I think all through my career, 
the good luck that I've had has has been driven by by kind of that karma that comes out of your affair. Um, and I don't have any, I do, I have examples of, of people referring us because they've been treated fairly. They go to these guys to make that film. That's happened, you know, a hundred times, but you end up, especially in the IMAX industry, mm. where it's a very closed, small industry and, and word gets around if you're, not being fair, um, but if you are being fair, the word gets around as well. So um, we've really driven <clears throat> kind of the the business side of of our IMAX group um, in a very positive fashion, and and it's all based on okay trying to treat even people like Mark Martinson who didn't want to be in front of the camera. <laughs> where where did that come from? You know, like, I'm curious, like, you're, you seemed to always have, like, a pretty strong moral compass and, and an appreciation for nature and, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm just, like, wondering, is there something in your childhood, your, your family, parents, someone that, that really helped show you that? I think for both Jim and for me, um, it came from our parents and, my dad, I, I worked with my dad. He built houses, um, single houses at a time. And so all through the summer to uh, make money to buy rolls of film, I would work at a dollar fifty an hour, you know, digging trenches, and sweeping up the jobs and, you know, pounding nails and carrying stacks of lumber and all that stuff. Got up apprentice work, um, building houses with him and wow. He was a hands-on builder and he was a, a woodworker and self-taught, right? Like he was self-taught yeah. on building homes, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Right out of a book. <laughs> yeah. Before Bob Vila. <laughs> first house wasn't very good. <laughs> it leaked. <laughs> but anyway, the, I think it came from dad because I, I would see the way that he would treat subcontractors. And he always said, you know, you've got to treat them fairly and honestly, even if they've messed up, they've come late or they haven't delivered or something you want, because you want them to be there for you the next time. Mm -hmm. And the little bit of a irritation that you may want to express by yelling at them or cursing at them or whatever, um, isn't worth it. Um, you know, it's better to remain friends, um, with people and never burn your bridges and because it, it'll make your life simpler, but also because it'll be good business. And, uh, and so, and, and, and I saw with him, it was not only that, but it was a, the moral way to treat people. Um, everyone's got their own set of problems, um, you know, it, and, and so you never really can understand someone else unless you've walked in their shoes for a number of days. You always can understand, though, that they have problems of their own, and and so if they're if they're being angry at you don't just get 
immediately angry at them. And so I think I saw that with dad. I know Jim saw that with his dad and, and his mom. And, um, it, it, it's worked, you know, I, I have to say that is a business philosophy is one thing. The other business philosophy that Jim and I agreed on was keep working on a film, even if you're investing your own money until you have it perfect. Mm -hmm. Once you have it perfect, then release it. And even if you're using your own money and you, you don't ever think you're going to break even on the, the project, go for it anyway, because it'll be then a credit card for you for later on. And eventually that film, if it's good enough, will then turn a profit later. And that's been a complete success for us. Well, we work our butt off on every film. Well, I mean, it interesting like uh because it it feels like you you kind of took a similar philosophy of like george lucas uh especially with your your everest film which was uh critically acclaimed uh widely regarded as, as one of the best mountain climbing films of all time and you know and you took put your own money in that and that pay it seems to like it paid off for you very well and you were able to then use that to bankroll all your other future projects which George Lucas did that with Empire Strikes Back and then it, it allowed him to be his own boss and have control uh creative control that most other people wouldn't wouldn't be able to have that's true and <clears throat> so I, I that that's philosophy I still believe in and now that my son and daughter are running our business um I'm engendering that in them and they believe in that they they can see that it's worked and so if you keep your your projects keep doing things that are original and no one has ever seen and they've never even thought about um go further than the last project in in creative fashion um make the experience well worth the price of admission and you'll succeed. And we will be right back. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our show. So one of the things like I've read about was like, you know, some of your movies because of that detail and because of the attention to, de- you know, the attention to it all, um, they were released almost a little past performance peak, you know, like, uh, uh, some have said, you know, like, the, um, you know, uh, waves of change or sunshine sea, which we'll get into that name change in a second, but, um, you know, that movie, which is amazing. It was, you know, kind of released almost past the shortboard revolution, but in retrospect now, when I watch that movie movie, like, it's stunning and it's it's timeless so it it ended up actually becoming more of a classic than if you rushed to get it out and you know if i i were to compare your films to you know wiktig brothers you know um those movies you know paul wittig like they were released pretty quickly and uh they will probably were not as nicely shot and and edited not as smoothly uh, you know, and I think oh, I could sit and watch your movies all day long compared to those. Uh, so I think there, there, it has paid off. Yeah, and that that's a wonderful example. Um, the, you know, I, we we distributed Evolution for Paul Paul Witzig, and um, and we were shooting in in France at the same time, and mm-hmm. he had Nat Young and Wayne Lynch, and uh, um, and we had. Mark Martinson and, and Keith Paul and, and, uh, Bill Hamilton. Um, the, he had Ted Spencer as well. So we, we both had three surfers. Um, the revolution of, of board changes were were just now then happening in, in 68. Uh, and the world contest was then coming up in Puerto Rico, um, late in that year, September, October, or November and the um, so we and you know Nat and I knew each other really well and we'd surf together and and <laughs> we'd laugh together and mm-hmm. drank together and he'd come over and fix spaghetti dinners for us but you end up um, what Jim and I were trying to do at that point with waves of change is to create a movie that was for the general audience, like the endless summer was for the general audience. And it wasn't specifically for surfers. And we were trying, trying this experiment and we didn't know if we'd succeed. Um, In fact, we didn't succeed in, in a lot of ways. The, the film did take longer to make because what we do is keep redoing it, mm-hmm. keep second guessing ourselves and trying to make it even better. And <clears throat> we brought in Bruce Brown um, to help. Uh, 
and wow and it, he he was he was fun to work with he was really a joyous joyous guy and then uh, he said well you know you ought to work with Bud Brown too and so we brought in Bud Brown and and Bruce interestingly because of his deal with uh, um, this guy Rudolph from uh, Cinema Five Distribution in New York, who distributed The Endless Summer. Um, and this was before Bruce started on any Sunday. Uh, he said, you know, Rudolph wants another film from me. What if I put my name on it with your names? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we release it through Rudolph. And so we kept changing it and making it better and better and better as it turned out by the time that we got it all together and released it or had it ready to release Rudolph had gone on and had, had kind of cooled on the idea of doing another surfing film and and so we released it through a, a distribution company called American National Enterprises and they did an interesting release um, through the, the U.S. They would go in and rent auditoriums, rent theaters, yeah. and do all the advertising on their own, and then take the profits. And so we made some of our money back, probably 80 or 90% of our money back with that experience. <clears throat> then once they finished... And they're the ones that wanted it changed from the way it I was going to ask, so the, how did the why did the name change? What was their critique? <laughs> well, it was, okay, ways of change, that's too esoteric. Only a simple <laughs> will understand, you know. And we so Sunshine Sea. <laughs> yeah, we, that, that sounds better. <laughs> we don't really care about the, uh, uh, the, the surfboard revolution, you know, the, the, the hippie revolution and all that. What we really care about is showing beautiful places and, and getting audiences in. And so so I came up with a bunch of titles for them and the Sunshine Sea was one of them. And they said, oh, we love this title. You know, we can sell that. And so we made a new poster. And um, in fact, the poster had a shot of Nat Young diving off of the edge of a cliff at mm -hmm. this beautiful place on Maui called the cliff house and uh kind of like the acapulco divers mm -hmm. and uh uh you know nat would do anything <laughs> <laughs> anything for for a little bit of attention yeah that, that, that was kind of the, the the role model for laird hamilton to follow <laughs> basically it was don't let any day go by without creating something new without doing something you've never done um those two guys are two of the most fun people to be around because they're so inventive. They're so mm -hmm. um, creative and um, always coming up with new things. That's why Nat has written like seven books. books. Yeah. <laughs> His brain <laughs> is continually going. So anyway, the, the, that's what happened with that film. That's why it was after the curve of, you know, the, the surfboard revolution, and, and but that was our our final surfing film. That's what we were looking at as being the final film from us. 
and because we were so engaged in Hollywood at that time. And then I had this inkling to make one more film that was just for surfers. And, and that became five summer stories. And Jim was, Jim was stoked. And he, he said, well, as long as we can make it different. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I've got some ideas and, and the Bud Brown and, and, and Jim and I got together and we, spent days coming up with all the ideas and um, I mapped it all out in a script. And well, like I said, I kept adding new ideas as time went on, but the, you ended up with this desire to give surfers one last look at our art, mm-hmm. our photography um, and, and our ideas about, the earth and the water um, through one more film because we had this network of of uh, fans that wanted another film and they wanted another film after that and that's why Five Summer Stories kept releasing you know seven years in a row um, our fan base was pretty big and <clears throat> and we had it all kind of organized we knew everyone's address and so they would get mailers and all that stuff you know wow and and uh and so you ended up um not wanting to walk away from this thing that you loved so much while you really wanted your career to you know engage with new challenges it's also nice to end on a high note, you know, kind of, kind of George Costanza S, you know, yeah. just leave. All right, I'm out. <laughs> leave him wanting more. <laughs> Did he do that? I can't remember. Yeah. One of the episodes he's like, you know, I just leave on a high note, you know, whenever so, like someone gives him a compliment, he's like, okay, I'm out. And so everyone has a good memory of him then. <laughs> he needed all the help he can get. Yeah. <laughs> I then like I guess then the question is like did was five summer stories like did it what was your original vision and did it did the original vision play out it, when you made it like was it everything that you had had originally conceived when you were when you were coming up with it and 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 was and Jim was stoked on it right like he wasn't like hesitant at all the the original vision did play out and, yeah. but I think that the actual competition criticism got even more intense, mm-hmm. uh, as things were revealed, um, particularly, you know, Corky Carroll's treatment in that, um, I think it was the, the 71 Huntington contest. Yeah. Um, and because I was shooting with this wonderful sync sound camera that runs quiet. So you yeah. right up. I was using a fisheye lens, so I would be literally inch really away from Corky's face. <laughs> and it sort, of, tell. it sort of distorted everything. Now you're sort of used to that camera yeah. usage and that lens usage. Back then, that was brand new. Yeah. No, no one had seen that look before. And so I was using that distorting lens to show the distortion of reality that competition lent to surfing Mm. couldn't have been um, further than from the joy of actually riding a wave or, or, or just sitting in the water, feeling the ocean rise and fall. 
um, competition layered on all the complexities of of the inland space onto a surfer's lap. And so, you know, he was dealing with all kinds of stuff. And and I wanted to show that. And and so the distortion lens, you know, the capping it with Chuck Dent is Oh, the rant that he gives is so And that's oh, the short, so full on. <laughs> that's the shortened version. Oh wow. The first release, um, and I don't know if I've ever told anyone this, but the first release, it was his rant was another maybe minute long, and but he had defamed a few companies. Oh, and so they got very irritated at both him and me, and they had their lawyers write us letters that, you know scathing letters and now they're they're going to own everything and <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna wow. and so i said well i so i negotiated with it i said well what if i just cut it out and and um uh, they said oh well that'll work <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first run of the film chuck Dent was way out there um you know even after you know he he and his criticism of Huntington Beach, <clears throat> that never was excised, even though the city of Huntington also wanted to sue us because um, they, they felt it was defamatory. It was honest. Yeah. I knew that we'd probably win. I didn't want to fight the court battle, but I knew that we'd win in court. That, that would just make them look awful too, because then you have to prove in court that it's not the place that they think it, or want to say it is, <laughs> which would be awful. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually, I didn't want to sour them on surfing no. um, because surfers needed it and yeah. they needed, needed the, the competitive situation so they could become more famous and get money. And, and at that time, Corky was just becoming the first pro, pro. surfer. Right. And he was actually making a, you know, passable living you know, a livable living from just riding waves. And, and it, it, so it was good. And he was the perfect guy for that. Cause you know, he, he's a good role model. He speaks well, he's funny as heck. Yeah. Energetic to the max. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the most fun guys I've ever been around. Um, the, the scene with, um, when you mic'd him up and he paddles out at, at, at pipe is just unbelievably classic and hilarious. How, how did you brainstorm that idea and how did you talk him into it? <laughs> and, and is that, that's little layered there that, that he talks to on the beach. That's yeah. <laughs> so cute. Well, he was living with us. We, we'd always rent this house called the log cabin house. <clears throat> and it was owned by a state senator and he would rent it to me and because mm-hmm. he trusted that I wasn't going to destroy it. And um, even though I had <laughs> a lot of parties there, yeah. the the, um, the crew, because it was a big house, yeah. it, so Corky Carroll and his wife Cheryl would stay there and Nat Young and his wife Marilyn and Drew Campion and his wife Judy and and so we'd have 
people staying with us. And Jim and I were, we had, we'd had our own bedrooms and then there were three or four other bedrooms. And so you ended up having a, a big house right there at what's now called log cabins. It's a break that it isn't good every day. It's good every maybe twice a month because the swell direction is really critical and it's kind of shallow. Um, mm. In fact, I've never challenged it. I never went out and surfed there because it just was too, too dangerous. It, but Mark would go out there and get tube after tube and, um, and it, it, so now it's actually a surf spot, <laughs> Yeah, but it, it, that's where we'd stay. So Corky's staying there with us. Hollywood had just come out with wireless microphones. New thing. <laughs> wow. Never before done. You know, I'd go on, oh my God, these little, little teeny transmitters, this big, before the transmitters were size of a lunchbox. Well, these little teeny transmitters uh, and then little wires and little teeny microphones. And so Bud Brown and I waterproofed the transmitter and, and cords. We, we put a, we went, well, what are we going to put on? How did you do that? <laughs> and so Bud goes, well, I wonder if a condom would go over the. I was just going to ask, did yeah. you guys use a condom? <laughs> the non-lubricated ones. <laughs> and just so, make sure it's not sheepskin because those are porous, you know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we did that. And sure enough, the sound transferred through that uh, device perfectly. It, it didn't really muffle the, the, the sound. And so we waterproofed it. We threw it in the bathtub. It worked fine. Um, and so here I am over there with my tape recorder, which was this big tape recorder like this battery operated. It's called a Nagra. It's, you know, worth 3000 bucks. So it's like really a good tape recorder. In order to run synchronous with the camera, I had to then shoot with a synchronous camera, which was the Airy 2 um, on a tripod. And so every time Corky would take off on a wave, you'd have to reach down, turn on the tape recorder, <laughs> reel-to-reel, quarter-inch tape, and photograph Corky, and then know that I'd have to sync that up later on in editing. <clears throat> but knowing that it would stay in sync with the the tape and and the sound and so you end up doing that Corky was excited to do it plus I was gonna pay him twenty five bucks or something to do it which was okay oh, back then it's pretty you good know? money I would yeah, I would do it for twenty five bucks today even <laughs> and and so um. We did it and it was fun. And, and, uh, and then Corky writes in my book about having all that, what we call gaffer tape, it's duct tape, <laughs> pulling, pulling it off and getting all that stuff off him was a struggle because he's got a somewhat hairy body. <laughs> the hairline would have been really interesting for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he related it to, uh, the, the, what was it? The 40 year old virgin when Steve Carell. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's a waxing. <laughs> anyway, the, what, 
What about um, Margot Oberg featured prominently in Five Summer Stories? And and what was your intention with sending her out at Backdoor Pipe? And and I would have I have to think like she probably was one of the first women to surf Backdoor Pipe at that time, and and probably one of the first surfers. Most surfers didn't even surf Backdoor at that yeah. time. Well, right then, <clears throat> you know, and she and a and a few other women were really becoming good and you know they were in they just weren't riding a wave let the wave push them along like marge and and a few others were doing but this was this was true surfing and you know Margot started when she was you know like 10 and and lived up in the santa barbara area and then san diego area and then grew in the surfing competition and, and became really, really good. And, um, Joey Hamasaki at the same time was great. And then Lynn Boyer after that was really good, very versatile and, and, um, flexible surfing where their bodies were like, you know, the men's bodies, they, they were moving, um, they were contorting themselves in a way that, that, earlier girls didn't really do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were starting to engage in bigger waves and more treacherous wave conditions. <clears throat> and Margot was up for doing anything. And we were good friends. And, and, uh, um, and so, you know, I wanted to feature her and, and shoot good footage of her. Um, thought that would be really interesting you know interesting to the public um that this young lady was just ripping and and today you see the same thing i mean some of these women are just as good as the men and absolutely doing things um that you really you know it's so cool to see a really good surfer Mm -hmm. when you're out in the water and you're surfing with them and you know what you could do on that wave. And then you see someone who's a hundred times better. And when you're close to them, um, out in the water, watching them, you can actually justify, pose your brain in their, into their brain and go, what would I do? And what they come up with is, like I said, a hundred times better and more different and more challenging and super difficult to do. And so, and, and now, now you're seeing that with women um, where you just go, what the heck, how did they do that? It's, it's amazing what representation does also, right? Like more women seeing other women surf and, and then more, the, the talent pool gets bigger. And then you realize like, oh, there's really not that much a differentiation actually between in men, women and men surfing, when you think about it, like how small a number of women that surfed back then compared to now, it's, it's incredible, you know, and it's, it's, I, I credit you for, for having that, you know, because I think I'm sure that that footage and that segment had influenced many other women. I think so too. And the, I, but, you, but you think today you, you, you see someone like Bethany Hamilton 
um, one arm surfer, yeah. how does she catch those waves? I mean, yeah. a struggle, number one, with two arms to catch those waves, to paddle fast enough to catch a wave at pipe or to catch a wave at sunset. These waves are moving toward shore really fast and you have to equal that speed. How does she do that? It's astounding. You know, it's, yeah. you go, I don't know. You know, and the, I saw, um, there was an interview the other day that I saw, uh, and someone was talking about the, uh, Queensland surfers, mm-hmm. uh, and the early surfers and why they were so good or part of the reason that they were so good, you know, people like Peter town and, and, uh, and he, uh, and yeah. all of them. Michael Peterson, those guys paddled faster and better because they grew up in this place where, whether it was Kira or, or uh, uh, the other places around there that have a lot of current. Mm-hmm. And so you never stop paddling. You basically don't go out there and sit and wait for a wave at the takeoff spot. You're continually getting to the takeoff spot. Because the current is taking you away from the takeoff spot. Exactly. So you're continually paddling. And so you gain muscles and strength and and, and fortitude and, and conditioning that allows you to paddle faster than those guys in Hawaii that just get to sit at the reef. Um, or here in California, you just <laughs> go out there and sit at the reef. And we will be right back. And now, back to our show. Um, I, I, I would, it would be ridiculous if I didn't talk about this, but we have to talk about the music for this. I mean, it's, you know, how, how did you can, I mean, I've, I've read stories, but from our listeners, like how did you connect with the long, your longtime collaborators in in honk and, and then how, how did you get freaking beach boys? Like (laughs) what the F? (laughs) Well, the, the, the Beach Boys um, came to us and they, they had heard, they'd seen the advertising that this was going to be our final film. And they'd seen The Sunshine Sea. They'd seen Free and Easy. They loved our films. And mm-hmm. um, by the time that we announced that we were making this final film, and we promoted Five Summer Stories for two years leading yeah. up to its release, um, by that time we knew how to advertise and we knew how to build anticipation for a mm-hmm. product. And so the Beach Boys called up and it was Bruce Johnston and Dennis Wilson and uh, Steve Love and Mike Love. Steve Love's one of, one of their managers. And <clears throat> they said, hey, you know, you, you probably think our music's corny and and but we're doing new music now and and we want you to listen to it but we really want to be a part of of this final film that you guys are making and jim was on the call jim took the call yeah and he he was so good at talking to people i mean and he basically landed the deal where they said you can use anything that we've ever written or recorded Wow. Without a cost. 
and we will get you through all the legal hassles. Um, and, you know, there's a couple songs that we've sold off to, you know, sold the publishing to other people and we'll get them to agree to it. And, and you might have to pay them a hundred bucks or something, but you know, you can get through it, but you ended up with this thing. They just wanted to be part of it. And <clears throat> what I did was had a field day um, when I was editing the film, because they just come out with this record album called surfs up had nothing to do with surfing. <laughs> and it was just gorgeous music, absolutely perfect music for our film. <clears throat> and then they, they, they said, okay, well, you can use anything that's come before as well. And so I built this whole sea changes sequence that takes surfing through history, but mm -hmm. also takes the Beach Boys through their history of evolution. Wow. The simplest, you know, sur surfing, surfing movie, surfing album, and, and their, their first records about surfing, which were very pop, still beautiful to listen to, great harmonies, but all the way through things like Feel Flows and, and uh, from the Surf Up album, which is just, you know, and, and um, Good Vibrations, which was an incredible yeah. light years change in recording quality for rock and roll. And, and interestingly, the, um, we signed the deal with them. So I had all this music to edit to, but I needed someone to do other cues that the Beach Boys wouldn't fit. And right at that same time, the group Honk was playing, uh, and they were all Laguna Beach guys, and, and one lady, uh, Beth Fitchett, and or Fichet. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, they were playing the different restaurants and and bars and 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 speakeasy down here in Laguna and San Clemente. <clears throat> so I go and listen to them and I get to know their their library and the music was beautiful. Um, yeah. A lot like uh, the Eagles, um, like before the Eagles with the Eagles and um, kind of a California fresh sound, not um, ostentatious or, or overproduced. Um, and I thought it was perfect. And, and it turned out that, you know, the members of the band are you know, my best buddies and Steve Wood, who was one of the two leaders of the band um, has become my, you know, one of our best, best friends. And, and he did the, the music to another about 30 of our IMAX films and a super talent, like this Renaissance band kind of talent. And um, so it's been a really wonderful experience with both Honk and, the Beach Boys, but the the music really made the movie. Um, you you would record a song and then re-edit to the song to meet the view. Is that correct? Right, right. Um, what I saw and and Jim did as well. This film being is kind of the marriage of 
of a concert with extremely powerful visuals and a few stories. Mm-hmm. And we wanted the kids to just get blown away. And so the $72,000 that we spent making the movie, <clears throat> half of it was spent on the sound. Um, and the other half on, on filming the movie. The, uh, um, because we wanted to release it in stereo sound with the highest frequency range, we had to develop a new way to do that. No one had ever tried that before. And <clears throat> this was before regular theaters had good sound. Uh, so we'd bring in our own speakers, brand new speakers, crisp, powerful, gigantic amplifiers <clears> that could power these big speakers. <clears throat> and the, the sound was magnificent. It was like a rock concert sound quality. Wow. <clears throat> but but here you were watching it as a surfing movie. And the uh, it was astounding. And so <clears throat> when the film came out in its first run uh, in March, April, and May 72, people had never experienced that. So the the word went out, particularly in Southern California and in Hawaii, that this is an experience not just for surfers, but for everyone. Every every kid then in its second run, which was in the summer of 72, which is almost a repeat of the first run, every kid then wanted to see it. And we'd run... We'd put out posters and then we'd run ads on rock and roll radio. Mm. We'd pick one station in each market and we'd, we'd understand which station was the rising star. Right. And a cutting edge. Yeah. And we'd do that through asking people at the beach. What, what do you listen to? What do you listen to? What do you listen to? It was all FM radio back then. And so we were at the, beginning edge of all these radio stations, you know, becoming, um, powerhouses. Um, and it was also before their ad rates would jump up. up. So <laughs> it was good to go both ways. Not only did you get, uh, surfers listening, but you, you, you'd get their ads, the, the ads at a lower cost. And, and so we just blanketed Southern California with, uh, ads for the film, um, 10 second ads. Um, I remember the ad. It was like, if you like surfing, you'll love five summer stories. And then it would say, you know, tonight at the Santa Monica civic at 10 second ad you with, with, with the music from pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) I could go on with that. Which is interesting. That song they wrote probably they'd love to say it yeah. in less time than it takes them to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I got to ask then, like there's this interesting parallel with five summer stories and morning of the earth. And, you know, morning of the earth came out just like a year previous in 2000 in, in 71 
was there any influence? Was there any rivalry with Albie Falzon? Did you ever cross paths? It, it feels like there's like almost like these parallels with your career and his, uh, you know, post, you know, surfing even like, you know, you both travel the world exploring, uh, you know, incredible culture and nature. Um, and I, I feel like that it's never, I've never read anything about it, you know, about the two kind of being compared, but to me, it, it seems like a logical step to, to think of the two, uh, in, in the same vein almost. Yeah. You know, I, I really love that film and we distributed that film in the U S and, um, the, so I, seen it you know a number of times um i think the only parallel that i could think of is just the fact that they used really strong popular music you know not Mm. not radical not weird not you know avant-garde they used kind of popular pop and rock and that's what we were doing and the environmental message too, it seems, right? Well, yeah, that's true. Um, the well, the Pacific, Pacific Vibrations had the same, you know, and and Sunshine Sea to some degree too. Mm-hmm. So, the, the environmental message, you know, it, it, the word ecology was coined, and the Earth Earth Day happened in '70, and and the whole Earth Catalog came out right about mm-hmm. the same time, and and Congress was passing bills, you know. Clean EPA water. was formed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of this was happening. There was a consciousness about, you know, industry going too far and our rivers, lakes, streams, oceans becoming polluted by uh, factories, uh, by big business. And our air, you know, LA, you couldn't breathe. Um, <laughs> on a lot of days, yeah. if kept indoors, you know, there'd be a, a, a smog alert <clears throat> and, and, uh, you'd be kept inside. You couldn't go outside and play and, and classrooms wouldn't allow recess. Wow. It's the law. And so you ended up, cause they didn't want kids to get emphysema. You know, you, mm-hmm. it was proven back then finally that that breathing bad air is not good for your lungs and it'll lead to things like emphysema and the, the, or acute cases of asthma. You end up then having people react. Um, one of those rivers on the East coast caught fire. There was so many pollutants in it. Um, (laughs) all kinds of things were going wrong and, and people were just treating, the earth poorly because they didn't know any better and they yeah. it was cheaper to do it that way. Finally, we caught on, we started pushing back and Nixon, who was in the white house signed those laws, 28 laws actually into existence because he didn't want to be picketed by surfers and hippies. <laughs> he already got that, you know, with his, with his place at Trestles. So, I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> and, so, and, and one of his neighbors was spying on him. That's <laughs> right. John C. <laughs> but you end up with, uh, um, a great time 
for sympathy for the ocean. And so our message was but both fresh, but also welcomed and interesting to people because they'd read about it somewhere else. But then when we talk about it and show it, it was, it was even a, a better example. <clears throat> and it, it, yeah, go on. Sorry. So the, the, the surf rider foundation started right after that. The California coastal commission started right after that, try to protect uh, beaches from being taken over by private interests, uh, closing off surfing. Um, and so a lot of good was happening. And now today that's far better. You know, our oceans are cleaner. The, the, the beaches are more well open. Now there are more surfers today, probably 10 times more surfers, but. Well, I, that's something though. I, I do want to mention Like the penultimate story of the film is titled the end of the world. And, and you said that the end of the world is coming if the present ecological imbalances are continued and the destruction of coastlines, the crowding of people into areas that are concreted over, where smog is infiltrating air and the oceans are polluted, where there is no place to surf, this is what the end of the world uh, is. And I have to ask, like, it, it sometimes feels like we are living in the end of the world, though. I mean, you say there are some things that we've made lots of gains on, but there's also a lot of things that I feel like are, are drawbacks. And I'm curious, like, do you think surfers have done right by the environment over the years from this warning on? From my observation, yes, I do think surfers have done the right thing. And I think, too, the, the public has done the right thing. Now, there are things that we didn't forecast back in 72, like the plastic pollution issue mm -hmm. and what's happening when plastics break down and just small microscopic pieces and fish eat them mm -hmm. they're in the ocean and then we eat them and then we <laughs> eat the fish. and right now the, a few scientists are saying that every one of us in the world has enough plastic inside of us to to be the same size as a credit card that's wild <laughs> so you and i have that much in us and <clears throat> but i eat a lot of fish so <laughs> maybe i'm <laughs> you end up um, going, okay, but we're taking care of, we understand the plastic thing and we're dealing with it in some ways. Um, for example, California, the, yeah. the legislature just passed a couple of months ago, a plastic pollution ban, you know, where over the next 10 years, single use plastics will be phased out. And it's it all been orchestrated by our Congress in a way that is really sensible. Um, and Oceana, the group that we support, had a big part in making that happen. And uh, so you, you see things like that. I mean, so I've got hope, um, you know, the early on, you know, the, the, the 50 years ago, people thought, okay, the only solution to pollution is to curb population growth. Mm -hmm. And, but today, now the scientists are saying, 
yeah, but that's almost impossible to do, though it is happening in, in more informed societies, mm-hmm. particularly where women are attending school and, 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 and college. <clears throat> the birth rate is, is down mm-hmm. and, and gets lowered. And you end up with a solution to the population expansion that way. There's also a capping off that scientists predict at about 12 billion people. Um, and I, I don't know the, the current numbers, but where you could create a sustainable earth and, and environmentally and with food and water and all our resources that would make that work. And so I, I have hope that we're going to get our way out of it. Just like Bill Gates, you know, wrote this wonderful book about, about climate change, where he says, we will figure our way out of it. We just have to start right this second. And with the, the, the inflation uh, bill that was just passed uh, by Congress and signed by the president just a couple of days ago, um, that's a wonderful step. Uh, you know, to the climate issues that we're engaged in. And, and really, you know, if you want to see something that is interesting, um, Frontline did a three-part series on big oil. Mm-hmm. And their successful lobbying and manipulation of the public to make sure that climate change never became an issue until now. So they basically have had 45 years of profiteering on everyone else's health. And, but now we're there, even they are at a point where they're saying, okay, we now agree with you. Um, climate change is happening and we've caused it. Um, let's get to get, get to work and fix it. And, uh, and that's what Bill Gates says. He says, we will fix this. We will figure out ways to make this better. Um, but let's hope that we're not too late. Yeah. So I'm going to take a tack now, <laughs> something a bit more uplifting, and you are releasing a new book, 500 Summer Stories, a new biography. Um, what was this process like? And, and, it, and it's coinciding with the 50th anniversary of Five Summer Stories. Um, how was this process, you know, going through all your past photos and stories for this book. Um, you know, what's it like kind of revisiting all of that? Well, it was fun and, but it was endless. The, <laughs> you know, it had three kind of major careers and, um, the first one was surfing. The second one with Hollywood and the third one with the IMAX industry. And <clears throat> the, each one of them is a story on its own, but you end up, you know, I, I, I did the book. Um, I started four years ago and, and kind of an insistence from about 20 friends <laughs> who kind of got tired of me telling these stories of the old days. And they go, you should write all these down. They're, they're pretty funny. And, and so I started and I, I would dictate my stories as I walked the beach. Mm-hmm. And there's this great program called Dragon where 
it'll then take your cell phone dictation, shoot it to your computer, print it out for you. Then you can go through and, and make edits and rewrite from that. So you've got it and you're loaded in your computer and you can then, um, you know, write from there. Um, it's a good way to start an activity that you're not used to. But um, there's something like 30 chapters to it. Um, each one is a different set of stories taking place at a different time, all done chronologically so that you can kind of see themes and, and uh, philosophies develop and be used um, as well as characters. And, uh, and so I think it's pretty engaging. Um, the main intent is it, it's the surfing part is really engaging because it, it deals with Jim and my travels um, first to South America and then to Europe um, and, and Hawaii and other places to shoot. And then through the Hollywood years, uh, the interesting things are, are trying new things for Hollywood and then working with Stanley Kubrick, um, which was kind of a highlight. And then there's a big, a big story about uh, working on Big Wednesday for a year with I, John Elliott. There's so much like ground to cover. It's crazy. Like, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, and then, what a uh, character he is, by the way. I just, I just saw John. Um, you know, he suffered a stroke, and you know, it was at a, an event, and, and we talked for a bit. And the uh, he has about now, he, about a year ago, he only had about three words that he could say. But you just see the enthusiasm and the and the brain power mm. behind his eyes. So you know that inside there you know, he's telling stories and, 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 and spitting out joy. Um, but he only now, he maybe says 10 words now because he'd, he'd read, I'd, I'd sent him parts of my book and yeah. his, his helper had read the book to him and he was just so jazzed to see me. And, you know, it was, it was like a, a reunion of, of compatriots and mm. we were basically, we were together honoring this wonderful friend, Basil Polidorus and his music, which is Hollywood based films, film music that, and Basil was one of my best friends um, and wrote the score to big Wednesday and, and Lonesome oh, Dove wow. and all kinds of, you know, hunt for the red October and um, you know, big Wednesday and, course um conan the barbarian and others but you end up um loving some of these experiences even in hollywood where you know people are harsh in hollywood and you know you you rarely find good positive stories with with human behavior in hollywood but mm -hmm. i've had some really good ones and um john milius is one of those and Kubrick is, is another one, though that was in London. But God, it's just such I a mean, joy to work with that man. John Milius, like I, he came. I used to do a surf film festival, and we did a uh, an anniversary screening on a big Wednesday, and 
wow, it was really cool. But the coolest thing was my friend ended up going to Katz's Deli with him and Denny Aberg. So it's <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah. one of the best stories. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, um, would you ever consider going back and making another surf film or returning or taking some of the outtakes from, from five summer stories or, or any extra clips and putting something together? Is that ever, have you ever thought about that? You know, I have, um, and there've been some opportunities in the IMAX realm to do a film about surfing. Um, and think how wonderful that could be. You know, no, shooting, yeah. shooting it, it's slow motion um, and projecting on those gigantic screens, five stories high. And the well, ultimate did they do clarity. that in 98, I think, or 99? Like, I, I remember going to an IMAX and seeing when they caught Ken Bradshaw's waves and everything, that outer, outer reef swell in 98. Yeah, that was called Extreme. And, yeah. you know, it had snowboarding, surfing, and something else in it. Um, and it, uh, it was really, really a cool film. And, um, it wasn't enough of a documentary storytelling technique wise yeah. to, to make us big success in our area of IMAX filmmaking, um, where you have to be a little bit more educational and a little bit mm-hmm. more entertaining for the general public but it was a powerful powerful film i love that film mind-blowing seeing it in imax like mind-blowing and i think i think uh the surf world would would be stoked if you uh (laughs) wanted to make a comeback or 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 do you know just just saying you know (laughs) just throwing it out there it'd be fun to do you know now with the smaller cameras the things you can it's crazy. do, so cool, you know, and it's, drone mind blowing. Yeah. Oh man, <clears throat> can you imagine what Jim would be like with the drones today? Do you ever think yeah. about that? Yeah, you know the the it it be. I haven't thought about what he would do with them so much as to what I can do with them myself right now. Yeah. You know, because we're trying. You, I don't know if you saw the film Ambulance by Michael Bay. I um, haven't yet, no, but I know about it. And he did some really imaginative shots with the drones um, where, I mean, they're just wicked cool. And you end up going, oh, my God, that is really fun, interesting filmmaking. Um, you've got to keep pushing yourself. That's the thing that. I've always found, and even in, in our IMAX films that that are more storytelling based, every sequence that's not engaging a person, um, or even those with people, have to be more engaging photographically and more engaging in terms of <clears throat> the way the audience associates to that sequence and the story that you're telling. Um, now. We, we push ourselves. We try to. Now, I mean, there's so much I would love to keep talking to you about, but I know our time is, is running out here. Like, uh, I mean, there's so much, I mean, you, 
you know, I mean, like to to doing one of the first IMAX films, to fly, to your stories with Everest. Like, there's an incredible amount. I would love to have you on again at some point. But I I I, I first have to ask, you know, do you still go by the nickname Bird Legs? And <laughs> oh, only my wife calls me that every once in a while. You know, my legs haven't gotten any thicker. That's for sure. <laughs> and and uh, where can our listeners um, first find uh, Five Summer Stories 50th Anniversary screenings and, and, and when, where can they find your, your biography? Well, the book is coming out in bookstores November 15th. Amazing. So, and we have advanced copies right now that, that we're um, giving out and sending to people and, and such. And then um the film is playing, and I think you just have to go on the website to look for those dates, but I know there's a screening next Wednesday at the South Coast Village Theater in Costa Mesa, mm-hmm. and then there's one at the Monica Theater on Thursday, and then there's a whole schedule elsewhere on the East Coast and and other and will, will it be digitally released as well? Oh yeah, yeah. This is all That's digital amazing. release. Amazing. It's all. So, um, I don't know. I don't think it'll be streamed, um, but I think it'll be in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it won't be streamed anytime soon. You don't. Not, not the Ira Opper hasn't hit you up yet. Then. Not yet. You end up. Um, you know the main intention. And I, I actually spent about a month editing the final, final version of Five Summer Stories and remixing the music um, because I had, you know, out of all the years that we re-released it, we'd always try to add at least one or two new stories and then delete or shorten the, some of the other stories that weren't so relevant. And <clears throat> so I had a lot to work from. And so what I tried to do is build the very best, you know, one and a half hour film for today's surfer, for today's person. And, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a different version than what maybe you're used to, but it still has all the highlights. But Different than this? Different than that. <laughs> than yeah. my box set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's, and it's really good. I, I'm really, really happy with it. Oh man. Well, if you do find yourself in New York, uh, for promoting the book or another screening, please do not hesitate to call (laughs) (laughs) and, um, and I'll make sure all our listeners, uh, go find this and, and hopefully we'll have some screenings here in New York for it. And, God, Greg, like such an honor uh, to speak to you. Uh, really, um, thank you for indulging me and my surf nerdiness on this. Like, I really appreciate it. Like your film, uh, very, it was super impactful on on both my brother and I and our aesthetic and how we look at surfing. And it really, both you and Jim's vision of surfing um, is just beautiful and, and inspiring. So thank you. Well, uh, I'm so stoked that you're 
but you're doing it and, and, you know, keeping the, the surf vibe alive, you know, and it, it's, it, surfing's grown, but it's changed. You know, there's less of a culture associated to it. And, and I, I kind of, I really miss the old get together with the surf movie, um, you know, going to the auditorium and seeing everyone else and talking to them. And, and uh, that, that joy is thankfully I'm, I'm redoing it now when I go to some of these screenings of five summer stories that are with that new version and can, can chat with my old buddies. And, um, but you know, way back, I, I wanted to ask you, yeah. you know a guy named Ken McIntyre. Yeah, I know. I, I, you know, it's a funny story there. So Ken, um, his son, Shane, uh, I met him. I was surfing this spot in New York uh, that I can't mention <laughs> and uh, with my brother. And we see this really tall, lanky guy walking down to this spot with this beautiful woman next to him. And he had a hot pink surfboard. And we're like, who's this kook? <laughs> and he takes off and he's ripping. And we start talking and we became friends. And then we realized, we found out uh, he came over to a barbecue I had with my father and all his friends who all grew up surfing in New York. And they re- put two and two together and realized this was the son of Kenny McIntyre. Oh, and no. so my dad uh, was, was good friends with Kenny. Uh, Eddie McCabe was also a, a really good family friend of mine who was great friends with him. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of my dad's friends, Jerry Gepetti, all these guys uh, were, were good friends with Kenny, actually. So uh, quite, yeah, an incredible character for sure. Yeah, yeah. My, my wife and I, she went to Cornell. And so when I showed A Cool Wave of Color in New York, and Kenny was the promoter, <clears throat> it was in 64. Barbara took the Greyhound bus all the way down. I picked her up at the Plaza Hotel. I had my old van, and my sister was with me. But we were staying with Kenny's parents. His oh, wow. dad was a cop. New York cop. <laughs> oh, the and, irony there. <laughs> yeah. I already got into a few things that maybe weren't that good. And the uh, and and uh, the screening, um, you know, Kenny was like a promoter. Yeah. Of everything. A mover and shaker for sure. Very charismatic. We stopped talking, and and he was a great basketball player. You know, phenomenal St. John's. Yeah, he was, <laughs> you know he he could have gone pro maybe had he really buckled down. Surfing hadn't gotten in the way. <laughs> but anyway, the, the the fun times back then, all the way back in the '64, the November '60 or uh, yeah. October wow. 64. This was right after Halloween. In fact, Kenny, right before my screening, <clears throat> I said, well, oh, why aren't you running around putting out posters and stuff? He said, oh, everything's taken care of. I've got 10 kids out putting posters out. Every high school's being covered. You know, every every telephone pole along the beach is covered. Every Everything is covered. I said, well, what are you working on? He goes, well, I'm also at the same time doing this gigantic Halloween party. <laughs> it's 25 bucks to get in. <laughs> you get all the beer you can eat, you drink. And 
Barbara and I went to that. And I mean, there were like a thousand people at this party. And he was just a wheeler dealer. Every, yeah. every day was filled with a thousand ideas. And, uh, you know, after that screening, <clears throat> you know, he, he went on to other things, you know, yeah, all kinds of other things business-wise, but also sport. And, and so I lost track of him, but the, the, uh, you know, I've heard stories over the years, but what a, what a classic. <laughs> and his dad amazing. could not have been different. You know, oh, I'm going to have to send this, this section of the interview to his son. He'll get a real kick out yeah. of it. <laughs> very quiet and sweet and wonderful and caring. And I remember we had to, there wasn't room in the house. So we had to sleep in the van and, um, you know, she kept coming out. He goes, now, do you need any more blankets? Do you need any water? <laughs> We're fine. We're fine. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, uh, Greg, really unbelievable honor. I really uh, super appreciative. Thank you so much. Uh, this was so much fun, and I really enjoyed talking with you. So thank well, you. It's been great to be interviewed by you. you You've got great questions. You really did a nice job with the homework. My God, some of that stuff I haven't even thought about. <laughs> I'm I'm a surf nerd, you know, and uh, you know, and uh, when there's no waves in New York, and there's nothing else to do but read about surfing, so <laughs> and and watch Five Summer Stories on loop. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with your show and everything else. Thanks, Greg. Yeah. All right. Upsets no prior plans. Read me. And don't let your goodbye stand. And don't let your goodbye stand. And don't let your goodbye stand. Lose a few more hours with me. I'll gain with you, but your wane and footsteps sadly indicate your changing.